from API. This is Energy Tomorrow Radio, your source for information and conversation about the most important energy issues of the day. Welcome to Energy Tomorrow Radio. I'm your host, Jane Van Ryan. During the past several months, scores of news articles and a few politicians have blamed gasoline prices on the shortage of refining capacity in the United States. They've noted, for example, that a new refinery hasn't been built in this country in the past 30 years, and they claim that the oil industry has not been investing enough money in gasoline production. We're going to tackle this issue today and shed some light on it with the help of Sterling Burnett, a senior fellow at the National Center for Policy Analysis in Dallas. Welcome, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. So, Sterling, what do you make of the statement that the oil industry has not built a new refinery in 30 years? Well, it's certainly accurate. If governments, local and federal, won't allow you to build a refinery, you don't build one. They have uh, worked very hard to expand capacity at existing refineries, and they have improved the efficiency at existing refineries. But as far as building a new one, brand new location, brand new site from the ground up, they haven't been able to get licensed and approval from either local, state, or federal officials for over 30 years now. And at the same time, you've had numerous, numerous uh, refineries, older refineries, less efficient refineries, smaller refineries, refineries that couldn't make a profit with new regulations that said, well, we have to uh, improve air quality, so we are going to put new emissions technologies on your refinery if you're going to continue operating it. And they say, we can't make a profit if we do that, and they close them down. So we've lost over half the refinery capacity in this country since 1981. But refinery capacity has been expanding inside the refinery fences, if you will. Uh, do you have any idea by how much it's increased? The basics are this. We've lost. We had In 1981, we had 324 refineries in this country. By 2006, we were down to 149. We increased uh, our oil demand, our gasoline demand during that time from about 16 million barrels a day to 21 million barrels a day. At the same time, despite the fact we lost over half the capacity, our refining capacity has gone down, but not as much as you would think from losing half of the number of refineries. It's gone from, in 1981, it was 18.6 million barrels a day. In 2006, we had 17.1 million barrels a day. So we lost 1.5 million barrels a day refining capacity. At the same time as we've uh, gone up 5 million barrels a day in, in demand. So uh, you can see the disconnect. We're now importing 10% of our gasoline, not just oil, crude oil, but gasoline. And that's more than double. And, of course, it is costly to expand a refinery, and there are a number of companies out there who've announced that they're hoping to expand refineries further. Do, but do you have a, a fix on just how much of that expense is the result of government regulations? You were talking about regulations at the beginning of our conversation. Well, I don't have hard numbers for how much the refining cost, I mean, how much the cost of a refinery is just due to regulations. It's hard to tease that out. But we do know that regulations impose costs both at the uh, stack. When you're putting out emissions, you have to put on all sorts of uh, clean air technologies the regulations have raised the cost of your inputs, so natural gas is necessary for refining capacity. Um, we can't produce any new natural gas in this country, so natural gas costs are going up. And we also know that um, it's just harder to go through the process and get one-sided. There's one company that's been trying to open the first new refinery in this country in 20 years. They've been trying for 20 years. They've been fighting the regulatory process for 20 years. 
They get approval, they get sued, they wind up in court, they have to go back through another approval process. It's endless, and they're spending millions of dollars, and they haven't even broken ground. So you're adding quite a bit of cost. And then the federal government, in its infinite wisdom, they think they know best in Washington, D.C., what you should burn your tank. So they don't only specify what it takes to build a refinery, but they specify the types of gasoline that you put in your tank. Uh, Before 2005, we had on the order of 50 different boutique fuels that are required by the federal government. These are fuels that you have to burn during a particular time of year in a particular location. And they cut that back to 17, but 17 boutique fuel requirements, three grades, your your regular, your mid-grade, and your premium, uh, that's 50... Uh, 51 different types of fuel. So that reduces refining capacity. On another topic here, Sterling, some critics have speculated that refiners have actually withheld fuel supplies intentionally. Um, Have you seen any evidence of that, or has the industry been actually trying to keep up with demand for gasoline? Well, refineries have been expanding on site. I mean, they have expanded quite a bit. They've improved efficiencies. They've gone from 78% maximum capacity in the 80s to more than 90% today. That couldn't be said a few years ago. They've expanded capacity on-site quite a bit. But at the same time, you know, this is not the first time this charge has been levied against the industry. The industry has spent tens of billions of dollars just in the past six years ago uh, alone rebuilding refineries that have been, well, destroyed during Katrina and Rita, uh, expanding capacity on-site, trying to get approvals to expand new capacity. But Congress has repeatedly raked the industry over the coals, saying that they're just suppressing supply to raise prices, and they've had one agency after another investigate. They've all done investigations as to whether uh, there's an artificial restriction, whether oil companies or refining the refining industry is artificially restricting supply, and not one of them has ever found that to be the case. Every time they report to Congress, nope, there's no cabal, there's no conspiracy to restrict supply. Congress says, uh, well, we don't like that answer. Go out and do another study. Basically, they want them to find that there's been uh, some kind of conspiracy, and they just can't do it. It's not there. Well, there's another issue right now that the refiners are dealing with, um, and it has to do with the bill that was passed back in December in which Congress uh, included a mandate to use some 36 billion gallons of ethanol every year in transportation fuel by 2025. There's a lot to say about the ethanol requirement. Uh, It's already affecting refining capacity. They were planning to bring, uh, you know, more than a, a million new barrels online since the expansion of the ethanol mandate, because you're only going to bring capacity online to refine gasoline if there's going to be demand for it. Because they're pushing ethanol, um, the demand isn't going to be as high. So they've already canceled 40% of new planned expansion in the gasoline refining industry because a lot of that's going to go into ethanol. So you're already having an effect. What can be said good about ethanol? I can't say anything good about ethanol, quite frankly. I think that corn belongs on your dinner table, not in your gas tank. And uh, this expansion of ethanol is a nice payoff to uh, big agribusiness, but it hurts the consumer. It's raising corn prices, uh, having the effects even already, of causing riots in Mexico because the price of tortillas has gone up. I mean, literally, the, the, there were riots in the streets because the price of tortillas quadrupled because corn prices have more than doubled. Uh, but that affects not just 
corn for food, but it affects your feed for cattle. So your meat prices have gone up, your dairy prices have gone up. It affects the price of other uh, crops because farmers are shifting their crops into corn because that's where the big subsidy is. That's where the big payoff is. That's where the big mandate is. Well, that means there's less supply of soybeans, less supply of other crops. So those prices go up. So if you're worried about the poor or those on fixed incomes, it seems to me raising fuel prices and raising food prices is just morally bankrupt. And that's what we're doing with this ethanol mandate. Do you also have concerns about changes in land use? Well, yes. I mean, they're already, uh, just due to the ethanol mandate, they're already trying to get approval to uh, open up what are called the Conservation Reserve Program lands, lands that are where farmers are being paid to set aside these lands for wildlife. Regardless of what you think about the CRP program, it's been successful in uh, providing habitat for wildlife and reclaiming some some uh, marginal fa- farmlands that were putting in production to uh, receive some of those uh, fa- generous farm subsidies. Well, now the farmers are saying, we want to break our contract and start planting corn because you're paying us a lot and you're mandating a lot of corn, and uh, we want to make money on that. In addition, you know, the, the evidence is you just can't replace much gasoline with ethanol. If every acre of corn in this country were used to produce ethanol, it would only supply 12% of current gasoline use, and that's not including the expected future growth. If every car in America were fueled with ethanol, it would take 97% of the land base in America. You just can't get there from here. And, you know, that's why barely two months, it's December, they pass the new energy bill that requires 36 billion gallons of ethanol by 2025. It's now February, and the Senate is already talking about taking up a bill that would uh, increase the time frame over which the ethanol is supposed to be supplied and decrease uh, the levels because they, you know, one wonders if, if Congress even reads these bills before they pass it sometime. Because they, they mandated that, they, they realized that corn is a bad deal for, for gasoline. And ethanol is a bad deal for gasoline. I mean, it reduces your uh, the miles you can get by over a third. So if you're driving a Chevy Suburban and it's getting 21 miles a gallon on the highway, you'll be getting 15 miles a gallon on the highway due to ethanol. Well, they say, well, we can't really get it from corn, so they, they mandated this thing called switchgrass, cellulosic ethanol, which is all fine and good if we have the technology to create it, but we don't. So they they did this thing. It's like saying... Doctors, you will cure cancer by 2015 because we're going to mandate it. We're passing a law, cancer will be cured. Well, that's what they did with ethanol. We're passing a law, you will have cellulosic, even though we don't know if it could ever be done. We don't know if it can be done cost-effectively. It's something like six times the price of of, uh, regular ethanol right now, much less gasoline. But we are going to mandate it. And, you know, two months later, they're sitting there, they're thinking the better of it. They're saying, you know... Uh, maybe we didn't really think that through. What if the technology is not there? What do we do then? So they're talking about uh, reducing that mandate. I think they never should put it on in the first place, but then I don't think Congress should be deciding what you burn in your fuel, uh, your gas tank. Well, what do you make of this House of Representatives bill that was just passed, which is an energy tax bill that would raise taxes on the oil and natural gas industry to pay for alternative fuel tax credit extensions? If you want to reduce domestic supply... If you want to make our industry uncompetitive with foreign industries, this bill is tailored to perfectly do all those things. But if you want to make us less dependent on foreign 
energy, oil, and gasoline, if you want to make our companies more competitive, if you want to help uh, retirees who have stock portfolios that include oil, oil stocks, if you want to make their retirement more secure, um, then this bill is a terrible thing because, quite frankly, it will do nothing to increase the supply of oil or gasoline. It will only make us more dependent because they can't tax the foreign companies. They can only tax our companies. That makes us less competitive. That means dollars that would have been invested here will now be invested elsewhere or in other companies, but not in the energy industry. And that means we're not increasing supply. So, you know, the gasoline prices are a function of two things, supply and demand. If demand's increasing and you can increase supply, prices go up. So based on that, Sterling, what do you think Congress should do to ensure adequate supplies of energy and a sufficient amount of refining capacity? First, they should, in, it, they should just end the boutique fuel, fuel requirement. There's no reason Congress should be specifying the types of fuel in your tank. So they should end that. That would, uh, every season, you know, I don't know if, you know, I'm sure all your your listeners, certainly every driver's noticed that come springtime, gas prices go up. And it's not just because you're driving more. Because they have to take those refineries offline to clean out the tanks and start generating the new types of fuel, the boutique fuel that's required for the summer operations. Same thing happens every fall when they have to go to winter blends. They need to end the boutique fuel requirement. That would free up refinery space right there. Uh, they need to end the ethanol requirement. They need to allow, and, and this, is, this is where the feds might, and I say might, but this is where the feds might have a role. Uh, if gasoline supply in this country is really a national security issue, the feds might have to step in and say, I'm sorry, state or locality, you're no longer going to have to, you're no longer going to be allowed to hold up uh, the building of new refineries. Or we've got uh, disused federal lands, largely military bases. Maybe we should be building refineries on some of these military bases, allow the building of refineries where local control can't say they can't build a refinery. Uh, as far as increasing domestic supply we've got at, when it, when oil was twenty dollars a barrel it was estimated we had between six and sixteen billion barrels of oil in the arctic national wildlife refuge in a small spot of it two thousand out of more than nineteen million acres we haven't been able to get at that oil and of course that was at twenty dollars a barrel they estimated that it was double that so you're talking twelve to uh, thirty two billion barrels of oil at $40 a barrel oil, and of course it's over 100 now, so who knows how much oil they'll be able to recover at that price. The Outer Continental Shelf, we have over 80 billion barrels of oil and trillions of cubic feet of natural gas locked up on our nation's coastlines. There's been a moratorium on new drilling and exploration on anything basically outside of Texas, Louisiana, and a small part of the Gulf of Mexico. Congress needs to end that if, if they're serious about reducing our dependence on foreign oil. If they're serious about reducing the pressure on prices and helping consumers out by reducing the price of gasoline by bringing on new supply, then they have to allow us to go where the energy is. We have energy off our coast. We have energy in Anwar. They need to let us get at it. Sterling, we really appreciate your comments today. And if you don't mind, I'd like to invite you back for another podcast in the future. Love to be on. Just let me know when. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio, brought to you by the people of America's oil and natural gas industry. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for future shows, visit energytomorrow.org. 
That's energytomorrow.org. 